Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Oh, hello. It's Wednesday. Better make it quick. I'm Osha Ginsberg. This is the quick version of Better Than Yesterday, which is a, a, a podcast designed to help you make today even better than yesterday. Something you hear on every show will do just that. That's a guarantee. We've been here since 2013, and uh, Mondays I'm here with a guest, Wednesdays I'm here with a guest, and Fridays I'm here with you. We are... Leaching back to celebrate one of my favourite conversations, we are just a few short months away from an election here in Australia, and there's a lot of talk about uh, jobs and growth and climate, da, 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 da. So I was very grateful to get the then acting CEO of Beyond Zero Emissions, Eitan Lenko, on the podcast to talk about the One Million Jobs initiative that they had developed. All this stuff is not some sort of magical pie in the sky wish. It was a policy framework that was derived directly from actual facts and existing technology and, you know, expected improvements in existing technology, not magical technology yet to be invented. Beyond Zero Emissions want to create a million climate-related jobs in Australia, and that's a lot of jobs. And this is really, really exciting. Now, bear in mind, this is a year ago now, maybe a bit more, that we spoke. So, Things have changed a little bit since then, certainly after the back end of our uh, fairly shameful response to COP26 and how we've just decided to keep on fucking digging up and selling coal. Because if you take what we export in coal into account, we are the fifth largest emitter of CO2 on the planet, which is pretty shameful considering there's only 20-something million of us, which is smaller than a city in another part of the world. Anyway, I asked Aitan where Australia is in terms of emissions? We're in a very interesting place. I think what's changed since BZD started doing our work is that the story back then was that it's a moral challenge. Like we need to get on top of climate change because we want a planet that we can live on and we want our kids to have good lives. 
it's going to be more expensive because the technology is not as mature, but it's worth it because all of that stuff is obviously worth it. But now we're in a really interesting situation where actually that technology through a lot of hard work that's happened in, you know, across the whole world through deployment of those technologies, they've come down in cost so much that they're now the cheapest form of energy. So we're saying we need to do this, you know, in order to have a habitable planet and all that stuff. But it also happens to be the most economic way forward for our economy. And for Australia, it's amazing because we've got the best renewable resource in the world. So actually, in a world that does this, we've got a a massive competitive advantage as well. So the economic facts have changed. Obviously, politically, there's still issues because Australia is the world's largest coal exporter and, you know, I think the second largest gas exporter. So we've got to... um, confront that reality and, and show that there's a pathway forward where we can maintain prosperity, which I believe, and that's the work that BZD does. But that's got to get across into the public consciousness and then into the political consciousness for us to realise, actually, this is an opportunity, not, not a threat, and it's something we should really lean into. Because there really is that trope, that story, I'll call it, that this lucky country that we have, everything that we own, everything that we have and the quality of life we have is because of coal and is because of gas. And if you want to take that away, then you hate what it is to be Australian because you'll take everything else away. But that's not exactly real, is it? That's like a story you tell to a kid to stop them from running away from a campfire at night. What's the reality? Yeah, well, the reality is, I mean, there's two sides to that. I mean, the coal and gas contribution to the economy and to jobs and all that stuff, obviously it's there but it's, it's probably overstated. There's, there's a whole lot of other things that make up our economy as well. But secondly, I think that story relies on the impression that what happens to coal and gas is under our control, where it's not. We export those things and you only export things when there's a buyer on the other side and the buyers are going away. Like even the government doesn't argue anymore that the buyers aren't going to go away for coal and for gas, we're starting to see that trend as well. And one of the things that coronavirus has shown us is that in moments like these, that those trends just get accelerated. You know, we've seen coal and gas. There's LNG tankers now floating around the world full of gas with nowhere to go because the demand's dropped out of the market. So, you know, this transition's going to happen whether we like it or not. And we can keep our head in the ground and not be prepared for it and have a lot of people be out of work without a lot of notice and without a plan for what they should do. Or we can recognise that there's a transition happening. We've got huge opportunities in that transition and let's plan for it and and actually have a plan for where those people go, what we do with our economy and not have it like catch us by surprise in five or 10 years time when China says, that's it, we're not importing coal anymore. We've got enough of our own. If I believe that story, everyone that doesn't do my job is apparently a coal miner. That's how important (laughs) and how many of these jobs there are. I'm like, well, there must be fucking everyone mining coal right now. But that can't be real. How many people work in, in coal mining? I think in the fossil fuel mining industry, and don't quote me, I think it's around 150,000 right. people. It's not insignificant, but, yeah, it's not everyone. Right. We've been very lucky. The lucky country is, isn't what you think it is. The lucky country is that we've, we've managed to stumble backwards down the set of stairs and land on our feet every single time because we have all this land, all this space, all this water, all these resources. And... 
coal, it seems to me, it's a big fat resource and it's easy to dig out of the ground and there's a market for it right now and why would we want to mess with that? Why would we want to mess with what's made Australia Australian and what's brought economic prosperity? The argument on the other side is of this conversation is that it's brought economic prosperity and lifted millions out of poverty, this access to cheap uh, energy. But what you're saying is it's no longer the cheapest energy and very, very soon in less time than my kid's been alive, the biggest markets we sell to won't want to buy it anymore. And if we don't start planning now, we're going to get caught with our pants down. Exactly. If we were the world's largest exporter of typewriters and someone had just invented the computer, you know, and I was sitting here saying, you know what, it's great that we're exporting typewriters, but I don't think that market's going to be around forever. Have you, have you seen those computers there? <laughs> they do a lot more and they're cheaper. Maybe, you know, if we've got the capability to build computers, maybe we should start thinking about getting into that. It's pretty much just that. It's obsolete technology. So clearly planning ahead is absolutely key. And I'm grateful to know that while our current coalition government doesn't really seem to be, I mean, they say they've got a plan, but I don't know. People like Beyond Zero Emissions are out there working really, really hard. And clearly, you know, investment capital and, and, and people like that are looking at places like Beyond Zero Emissions for guidance and for, you know, where to, you know, put their capital. So when I spoke to Aton, this is again, this is in 2020, we were only a few months into the COVID-19 pandemic. He made an interesting comparison, that I think still really important right now, an interesting comparison between climate change and the pandemic. So, yeah, we, we were in a moment because obviously we've done what we had to do. We've listened to the scientists and we've done what we had to do to protect ourselves from having a mega crisis here with COVID-19. But that's meant that obviously the economy has been impacted. I think as we speak, the unemployment rate's gone above 7% for the first time in a long time. And we know that we're going to have to spend money to get the economy back on track. So we're at a crossroads, you know, do we want the economy that we had? Do we want to double down on a, on a polluting, inefficient economy? Or do we want to invest in a you know, the trend of where things are going, the, the decarbonisation trend, the electrification trend, what I call the digitization trend, you know, moving to electrical technologies and then having them powered by cheap, efficient, non-polluting renewables. And the premise, I think, for an effective, or not just I think, I mean, generally accepted the premise for effective stimulus spending is that you want to accelerate a trend that's already in place. You want to bring forward jobs that are going to be created anyway in the future and make sure that they created today when we need them. So if we accept that there is a trend out there, there's a trend towards digitization and electrification and decarbonization, then you know this is the moment where we should be investing to bring those jobs forward today and, and upgrade our infrastructure and really set ourselves up for the next 50 years of growth so that we can keep being that lucky country because we've got all the ingredients in place to do that. And that's the work that Beyond Zero Emissions is doing now. We've put together a what we're calling the Million Jobs Plan. You know, we're going to need a million jobs to be created over the next few years to stop unemployment from getting out of control. And this is really the one project that we can create jobs on that scale and, um, you know, get long-term benefits from it. So it seems to me like this is a no-brainer, but it also seems to me that because this is not just an economic decision, look, not only do we have to do this because the markets are going to go away, not only do we have to do this because we need to create the jobs, we also have to do this because we just can't keep burning fossil fuels if we want to have a planet to live on, all right? And that, though, that's the third thing I mentioned. It is the thing that's of most priority to me. But I understand that if you mention that first, a lot of people will go, ah, 
dead greenie, fuck off. You'll shut a lot of people <laughs> down. So in this conversation, why is it so important to lead with the economic argument and lead with the prosperity argument? Well, like you say, I think you have to be sensitive to where the conversation is at and to what people are feeling. Like there's emotion out there. Australia's unemployment rate is up. And understandably, for people that are affected, the abstract, you know, although it's becoming less abstract by the day and we've just gone through all these bushfires, but, you know, climate change still, you know, relatively abstract for people's day-to-day lives. Coronavirus was a lot less abstract, as you've talked about a lot in your podcast, but unemployment's also extremely non-abstract. When, you, when you're worrying about bringing income to your family, maintaining your lifestyle, all those sorts, you know, even your self-esteem, of being unemployed, suddenly, you know, that goes to the top of the hierarchy of things that you need to understand. And when, when people are feeling the urgency around something like that, creating jobs, I mean, obviously that's where government goes to too. And then the government then, leading through government is all about priorities and, and making decisions what you want to do. And maybe after the bushfires, you know, it was leaning towards let's get some action going on climate change because that's what the public is demanding and we're seeing the impacts of that. Well, that's swung now and it's all about where do we create the jobs because that's what the public's demanding and that's what people are feeling. And as I've said, it just so happens that we can solve all the problems together. We're revisiting my conversation with Eitan Lenko. At the time was the acting CEO of Beyond Zero Emissions. He's a current chair of Beyond Zero Emissions, so he has a, a different role. He's not so day-to-day there, I guess, now. If you ever want to get in touch with me, by the way, it's super easy. Send us your email at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram. In a minute, we're going to get back to Aton, but you might hear an ad here. If you do, ah, hey, thanks. You're helping us keep the lights on. If not, enjoy the musical stylings of Toe Hider. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Thanks for being a part of the show. This is Better Than Yesterday. We're revisiting my conversation with Eitan Lenko, who's the current chair of Beyond Zero Emissions. When we spoke, he was this acting CEO. Beyond Zero Emissions have a plan to bring 1 million climate-related jobs to Australia, which is a lot of jobs, considering that coal mining is only 40,000 jobs in Australia. But it's a big number. So I asked, look, where, where are those million jobs going to come from? Well, this is an ambitious plan, and you're right, a million jobs is, is a lot of jobs. But when you think about the project, I guess, to decarbonize the Australian economy. Let's accept my thesis that there's lots of benefits in that and that long-term it's going to be an amazing thing, but it's a big job to do it. So what BZD have done is look across basically on the scale of what we need to do, what are the different areas of the economy where we're going to have to put effort in and how many jobs can we get out of those? So some of the highlights 
obviously the basis of any plan like this is going to be a big build out of renewables. And we're talking about building out 90 gigawatts of renewables over, over the next five years, which is a lot of renewables. But uh, we've got at the moment 130 gigawatts of renewables in the in the pipeline in Australia of, of projects that have been put forward yeah. to be um, to, at various stages. So the, the projects are there. Give me an idea, like with the current amount of gigawatts of renewables that we've got, with plus these 130, plus these 90, where does that go to meeting our current energy or projected energy demands? So this will this will get us well on the way to 100 percent renewables. Right, that's huge. Absolutely, yeah. So a million jobs is a lot of jobs to come out of thin air, Aitan. All right, and what you're talking about is we have this opportunity right now, and I believe you're working on this before anybody knew what SARS-CoV-2 was. So you were still looking at it as a very important thing for our country to do. But as far as being through that pandemic, I think there was one point, Aitan, where I read a thing saying we were less than two months away from running out of liquid fuel because of global shipping stoppages. And that would mean our country would be fucked. The food supply would grind to a halt. Small towns would not be able to get the trucks in to fill their supermarkets. It would have been a very bad thing. Very, very bad thing. And it really shined a light on the dire need for energy independence or less reliance on imported fuels to get us from place to place. And so the the push towards being sovereign or being independent as far as our energy goes to get us around, to make sure our food supply keeps going, to make sure our industry keeps going, is now really, really in the in in the spotlight. So with that as well, it seems that this argument towards, look, we're going to have to make a move just gets stronger because of this lockdown and because of the economic peril that we, we saw and are seeing right now. So obviously people are talking about making jobs. Where do you start? A million jobs is a lot of jobs. Where do you even begin, Aitan? Yeah, well, you're right. A million jobs is a lot of jobs. But the scale of the project to decarbonise Australia is huge as well. So we've got a lot of work to do to decarbonise Australia. And, and if you accept my thesis that that will have a lot of benefits because uh, renewables are now the cheapest form of energy and basing an economy of that. Also, there's, there's been a lot of talk through this crisis about uh, self-reliance. You know, when, when the rest of the world does go through a crisis and suddenly we're on our own and we need our own stuff, you know, we need to be able to rely on our own energy and not assume that oil is going to be exactly as you say, that the oil is going to be arriving from other countries. So this electrification plan, basically, you know, we're talking about electrifying as much as possible and then powering it all with renewables would mean that we'd be self-reliant and safer and more secure as a country. So, you know, if we kind of start looking into some of the areas, obviously the, the foundation of any electrification plan is, is the energy itself. And we're proposing a big renewable energy build-out over the next five years, which would, on its own would create 120 to 160,000 jobs. So that's building the solar farms and the wind farms and also building the transmission infrastructure out to where we need it to be and also you know the batteries and the other storage that we'll require and the reason is there's so many jobs in that is because we're assuming that we're being smart about it and not just importing all those wind turbines from china but you know if we're going to build something on that scale we're going to put around that local procurement laws so that you know if you're going to build a wind farm in australia you're going to build the components of that wind farm in Australia. And, and this would be such a pretty big build out. So there'll be the scale that we can create a manufacturing industry around it. 
So building the actual wind turbines and as much as possible, the components for the solar farms, actually building them here, like smelting the steel, you know, making it all as much as possible, bending it, shaping it, building the components, putting it all together, trucking it out there. You know, at the very least, we're assembling it here. Yeah. And if you need to import the components and then, and then have people putting them together, but we're already smelting the steel and all that yeah. sort of stuff here. So, you know, let's be ambitious. The next area is our buildings and buildings are a great area for stimulus spending because there's, you know, the construction industry always gets hit hard in a slowdown. You know, you've got your tradies and all those sorts of guys that, that need to get back to work pretty quickly. So I think this is a really interesting part of our plan. We're talking about creating 3 million zero energy buildings. So rather than just paying people just to do a renovation and, and put it in your kitchen, you're paying people to upgrade the energy efficiency of their houses, electrify their houses, you know, remove the gas and put in electrical appliances and then also have it powered by solar and, and a battery if you need it. So that cost kind of works out to around $25,000 per house to get them to the point where they won't pay any energy bills in the future. Yeah. And what's interesting is that the amount that we pay for energy bills over the next five years basically cancels that out, if you know what I mean. So it pays for itself. It's super clear that there are plenty of solutions and immediate actions that we can take that will give our country jobs, growth, security, climate resilience if we just decide to do them. We're not waiting for some sort of magician to wave a wand and just decide what new thing to do. Like it's clearly out there. And I'm really grateful that teams like Beyond Zero Emissions are, um, are working super hard to make this stuff a reality. The thing is though, that they're not, they're not a political party where they do help, you know, people who are in positions of power with policy. So as we're looking forward towards an election coming our way in the next couple of months, really have a think about, you know, what climate inaction looks like. It's not just the physical threat to your life, my life, our food supply, our water supply, our homes. It's a threat to our economy. It's a threat to our jobs. It's a threat to our infrastructure. It's a threat to our transportation. There are enormous opportunities in all of this. And in my opinion, this is going to be the election of the independent climate-focused candidate. Uh, there's one in our electorate here in, in Wentworth, Allegra Spender. She's comes from incredible credentials, right? She's unbelievably successful in what she does. And she's pretty much just saying, look, you know, economically, my family's been a Liberal Party family the whole time. Like her dad was in the Liberal Party. Her grandfather wrote the ANZUS Treaty. But she's like, these guys aren't pulling the trigger on climate. And you might be able to talk the talk as a Liberal Party candidate, but eventually you're going to vote with Barnaby Joyce. And I, I really think this is going to be the election of the independent, the climate-focused independent, because to be climate-focused is to be economy-focused. To put all our chips into the coal basket is a losing strategy. And the quicker we transition, the quicker we stand a chance of not missing out, because if we don't make a move like now, this is the election to do it. These next 10 years are going to be so important for Australia, which is why I'm grateful that someone like Eitan Lenko and his team at BZE are, are working really, really hard. But there's plenty of them. So have a look around near you. There's probably an independent running in your electorate that is climate focused and rationally economically minded. You know, all the things that people who traditionally voted coalition like, they like rational economics. I like rational economics. But to have an irrational view of where climate plays a role in the economic policy is bananas, frankly. 
And there's some really smart people who can read economics, economic science and read science science and go, here's the right thing to do. Yeah. So I'd never tell you who to vote for, but have a think about that. <laughs> All right. Uh, look, uh, I'll be back on Friday to have a bit of a chat with you. If you need me, until then, uh, send us your email at gmail.com or um, find me on Instagram. Thanks to Bree Steele, who produced this episode, Andy Ma, my audio producer, and of course, uh, the amazing Rachel Barrett, my executive producer, and Toe Hyder on the tunes. Thanks heaps. See you on Friday. Sleep well. Dream of beautiful things, man. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 